Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Andrew, you've been covering Rudolph Giuliani for over 30 years. Is he the same guy that you met in the early 90s? There are obviously elements of the person who was such an extraordinary prosecutor and mayor. But if you speak with any of the people who he surrounded himself with back in the prosecutor days, his mayor days, his presidential election days, none of them recognize who Giuliani is now. And that's why most of them have fallen away. Mm. You call the former mayor your muse? (laughs) I I mean, I have never (laughs) covered someone who has captured my imagination as much as Rudy Giuliani. I mean, the the Giuliani story is one of the great rise and fall stories of our lifetime. He was, at one point, the most famous prosecutor of the 1980s, the most famous mayor of the 1990s. When he ran for president, he was voted more popular than the pope. Uh, This is someone who you cannot overstate the extraordinary popularity of Giuliani at his height, at his post-9-11 height, right? That's Andrew Kurtzman, a journalist who's been covering Rudy since 1992. He's the author of two biographies of the man, including most recently Giuliani, The Rise and Tragic Fall of America's Mayor. Let me back up and introduce myself as well. I'm Brian Stelter. Let me welcome you to Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Today, as you can tell, we're going inside the Rudy of it all. He is in some ways a skeleton key for understanding the Trump era. And in the latest Trump indictment, he's co-conspirator number one. I'm also joined by Claire Howorth, executive editor of Vanity Fair. And Claire, you've edited a piece about Rudy for the magazine. He is, if nothing else, an incredible story. That's why we're all here. He is an incredible story. And I think Andrew, actually, in in that story that we published by Atish Tassir about two years ago on the 20th anniversary of 9-11, you spoke to Atish about being with Giuliani on 9-11 and how you woke up that morning. Can you tell us about that day, how it started, and, and what happened? Sure. So I was working at New York One as host of Inside City Hall at the time, the nightly political show. And um, the next morning was election day in New York City. And so we were all got the benefit of sleeping late because it was going to be long night on television that night. And the phone rings and it's my mother, kind of the phone call that a lot of people got across the country that day, telling me to turn on the television, right? And there were, there were the, the two smoking towers. And, you know, I threw on my clothes, ran downstairs, kind of terrified this taxi driver into taking me towards the World Trade Center. And the general manager of the station, Steve Paulus, had told me, find Giuliani. That was my assignment. Um, At some point near the Trade Center, the taxi driver slammed on the brakes, kicked me out of the car, and, you know, get out in the street, and Tower One had already collapsed. I'd watched it outside of the window of my taxi, and uh, the, the streets were deserted, covered with ash. Policemen screamed at me to get off the street, and I showed him my press pass, and I'm like, I'm looking for Giuliani. And he said, oh, Giuliani, he's right there. 
<laughs> and by extraordinary coincidence, Giuliani was at the corner with all of his aides and Bernie Carrick and his um, fire commissioner covered in ash from the collapse of Tower One. And he said, Andrew, let's go. And we, you know, proceeded to take this kind of nomadic trek up Church Street away from the towers. Mm -hmm. And then Tower Two started to fall and we went running. Had you felt you were both in imminent danger? I mean, were, yeah. was he? Yeah. yeah no, we Ugh. were, you know, we were running for our lives. <laughs> we were being chased by this, you know, mushroom cloud of fire and smoke and ash. And um, the, the point that I'm of this story is that the Giuliani that I watched from two feet away that whole morning was, if anything, more impressive than the Giuliani that people watched across the world on television. That it was such a, an incredibly terrifying moment when anarchy just like took over the streets of New York. I mean, we didn't even have a car. Like it, we were completely on our own. We ended up having to break into a firehouse with a crowbar. Mm. Like, that's how kind of desperate the situation was. And Giuliani was a calm, uh, uh, fatherly kind of general, right? He was the calmest one kind of among us. And then when he went on television, he became kind of a father figure, kind of telling everyone across the world, it's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. Everything is going to be okay. You know, I'm in charge. I mean, there was a reason he became the most admired man in America for a short time. So, you know, I saw all the good and all the bad of the Giuliani era. And, you know, the New York that Giuliani left after eight years was far, far better than it was when he took office. But that's why this is such a mystery now, right? Nearly 20 years later, what happened to Rudy Giuliani? Right. Do you have a an easy way of explaining it? I think if you had to boil it down— to one word, it would be desperation. Mm. It would be desperation for power and money kind of on the way up, and then desperation to recapture his relevance, his fame, after he lost the 2008 presidential race. And if you're looking for kind of the, you know, the pivot point for when Rudy Giuliani changed, mm. became more desperate, went downhill into the clutches of Donald Trump's arms, it was the flame out of his race for president. He was he mm. was born for that moment. He wanted to run for president, become the first uh, Italian Catholic president since grade school. That was his moment. And for a year, Giuliani was number one in the polls. He was leading the pack for an entire year. When the primary started in 2008, it was just eight weeks before he had a dropout in humiliation after capturing just one delegate. And the, the, the what happened answer is that moment when he lost his 9-11 halo, all of the money he was making by cashing in at 9-11 started to evaporate. And that's what drove a desperate quest to recapture what he had lost. And that's what drove him into the arms of Donald Trump. And so Rudy becomes, Claire, maybe the, the ultimate example of a, you know, a person who attaches to Trump and then suffers for it, you know, gets burned for it. We've seen this a hundred times. But he seems to want to, no? I mean, Andrew, uh, you tell well, that's, us. Yes. That's the this seems part. very consensual and It is desired. consensual. I totally agree with that. I mean, if you remember kind of the, the last weeks of the Trump presidency, when he is, he is trying to desperately to overturn the results of the election when 
all of his election lawyers have told him that he's lost, right? The attorney general has told him he's lost. His presidential counsel has told him that he's lost. The only person left telling Donald Trump that he had won the presidency was Rudy Giuliani. It was just Giuliani and Trump when they were turning the lights out uh, in the mm. White House. And and to this day, Giuliani is stood by Donald Trump's side, even as his entire career has imploded because of it. Mm-hmm. And now co-conspirator number one. Uh, so, you know, he's not mentioned by name in the indictment from last week, but even his own attorney has acknowledged that Giuliani appears to be listed as co-conspirator number one. At the same time, though, you know, Rudy has spun some skepticism of this. Let's play a clip where he says that uh, some facts might be being twisted. And I wonder if I am co-conspirator number one. Because I'm not the person that said what they said I said. I mean, they they just twist facts and twist facts. This is not, they do not allege a crime here. They allege a uh, controversial exercise of free speech. And they uh, allege against the co-conspirators acting ethically as lawyers, giving the benefit of the doubt to their client. Andrew, is this what Rudy always does? He, he tries to talk himself out of trouble. He, he tries to spin in the court of public opinion, but not really in court. I think it's total sophistry. Mm. And I, I think that Giuliani will never admit any kind of fault. And obviously not right now when his future is kind of, you know, hanging in the balance. But it's very consistent with Giuliani over the years. He's mm. he's never going to admit that he was wrong about anything. And right now he's, you know, he's throwing spaghetti against the wall, just like hoping something will stick, hoping he can muddy the waters. But he's in terrible trouble, terrible trouble, perhaps even more trouble in Georgia than he is in D.C. And, and that indictment's expected uh, in the coming days. So the fourth against Donald Trump and, and the second potentially against Rudy. There is a sense, tell me if I'm wrong, that, that Rudy could be charged in Washington, although he hasn't been yet. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Bernie Carrick, his kind of sidekick, was brought to the, uh, testify before the grand jury in D.C. Yeah, the grand uh, the jury is still working on this, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's, that's a bad sign for Giuliani. Mm. So reading the January 6th indictment, you say he's in deep trouble. You sound like you are persuaded by the the allegations from Jack Smith's team. I mean, it's a damning indictment. And I, I expect that Giuliani will probably be indicted personally by Smith. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be a very hard thing for Giuliani to get out of. But unlike Trump, mm-hmm. Giuliani testified under oath before uh, committees, This, in this case, committees and state legislatures, and presented false evidence um, destroyed the reputations of election workers, um, you know, presented videos of what he said were votes being stuffed into suitcases that was not true. Mm. I mean, you know, you can't lie under oath to a, a legislative body. It's a crime. Mm. You're reminding me of that, that period in mid-November of 2020 where, you know, Giuliani shows up in a federal court in Pennsylvania. And, you know, I remember reading stories at the time about how he had, he had not testified in that way since the early 90s. He had not been in federal court since the days you first covered him as a beat reporter. Uh, and he clearly uh, was not uh, up to speed. He was, there not, was all there. 
Reality-based. There was, you know, there was a quality of kind of the aging champ returning to the arena after decades away. And, Mm -hmm. you know, he was not the Giuliani of his prosecutor days back in the 80s. He was befuddled. He didn't understand specific legal terms. He was also completely off script in that the case had been narrowed down to a very, very small um, I believe that they had found two voters who felt that they were disenfranchised. Well, Giuliani was not about to give a narrow argument, despite the pleas of the other uh, Trump election lawyers. So he came in and charged this, you know, nationwide conspiracy to steal the election without any possible evidence. And sure enough, when the judge gave his ruling, he referred to Giuliani's suit as Frankenstein's monster. I mean, he could not have been kind of eviscerated more by the judge. Right. But, but you know, Claire, you say he's not all there. I say he's not reality-based. Isn't this something we've seen time and time again with, you know, with Trump world, with the, the MAGA movement? It's that we're talking about characters who are not reality-based. And frankly, I find that hard as a writer. It's hard as an editor to— to tackle some of these folks. It's, it's nearly impossible. And I have to say, researching things to discuss with you, Andrew, I uh, indulged in Michael Cohen's new podcast, Mea Culpa, um, which he his intros to the Sopranos tune, but it says, Mea Culpa, Michael Cohen. <laughs> right, right, right. It's just way out there. And, and what did you learn? And, well, I'm going to read you this quote. The clown car of legal fuck-ups that make up the Trump legal team just had a turd thrown into their punch bowl from our favorite farting attorney and drunken buffoon, <sighs> Rudy Colludi Giuliani. And then he goes on to talk about Mark the Moron Meadows, the asshole Bernie Carrick, who we can talk about in a minute, and Marjorie Toilet Green. And it's just like from one reformed Trump world deplorable. Uh. Here, here's this kind of epic, colorful tale on these people. And you do sit here and listen and you think, how did this happen? And how, how are people like Giuliani still on the circuit? I mean, Giuliani has an active <laughs> podcast himself. That, that's right. a good point. The clip I just played is from his like radio show podcast thing. He's still out there. I mean, Claire, you raised a lot of interesting Yucky claims. words. <laughs> yes. Let's unpack some of those in just a moment. Let's let's go back to member of 2020 and all, what all happened with Andrew and Claire in just a moment. The 2024 election means this year is going to be chock full of drama and nail-biting suspense. You deserve a politics and news podcast expert analysis. No spin, no BS, just trusted journalists talking about what you need to know. I'm David Plotz, and each week on Slate's Political Gab Fest, I sit down with The New York Times' Emily Bazelon and CBS News' John Dickerson to do just that. Join us as we unpack the latest in politics, news, and the courts. Listen to The Political Gab Fest every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. All right, welcome back to Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. I'm Brian Selter, talking with Claire Howorth and Andrew Kurtzman about Rudy Giuliani. And before the break, Claire, you raised uh, some of the um, the concerns about Rudy Giuliani, the, the questions about how he's changed over the years. Uh, one of them is about allegations of drinking. And I, I think it's, it's interesting to dive into this from a reporting perspective, Andrew. 
I've been you know, going through all the Dominion filings and Dominion v. Fox, and there's these emails from Rupert Murdoch in November of 2020 where you know, he's, of course, very worried about Trump. He thinks Trump is setting the country on fire. He, he says, I think of Rudy. Rudy's damaging the country. He says, I think the booze has got him. Mm-hmm. And so— you know, this is not some liberal, this is not some ad, you know, critic from the left coming after Rudy. This is the head of Fox saying, you know, Rudy is a drunk. Yep. And this has come up again and again, Claire. Well, I mean, I can't explain it. Andrew, maybe you can. I think Michael Cohen jokes about drunken buffoon, but it's actually a totally legitimate question is what what has substance abuse got to do with all this? Right. Well, it, there is relevance to a substance abuse. I interviewed Giuliani's ex-wife, Judy Giuliani, extensively for my book. And she tells this harrowing story, which goes back to his loss in 2008 in the presidential race, in which he he loses in total humiliation. And she tells a story about the days after the loss, how Giuliani went into a deep depression and how um, they flew uh, south to Florida to kind of um, to rest and recuperate. But Giuliani started drinking and um, he started, you know, falling down drunk and injuring himself. Mm. And, you know, there was this one experience where he fell, dr- according to her, he fell drunk out of a car uh, in an outdoor mall headed to a movie theater. And um, he was due to be on Saturday Night Live, I think a few days after that. And if you watch that clip of Giuliani on Weekend Update, you could see the makeup, you know, just barely conceals this. Uh, oh, my this, God. Yeah. <laughs> a this precursor injury. to the shoe polish. Oh. Right. Um, and so it oh, was, no. you know, Giuliani had always been a partier, but no one remembers him as a serious drinker, alcoholic until that happened. And again, you know, that was kind of the beginning of Giuliani's fall. And the mm. the extraordinary kind of end of that story is that as he's kind of wallowing in depression and drinking and falling down there, you know, she's like, we got to get out of here. And so who takes them in but Donald Trump? <laughs> and he invites them to come to Mar-a-Lago. And this is all the way back to 2008 before anyone knew they had a close relationship. And he gives them a cottage um, right on, um, I think it's ocean, right yeah, off ocean the ocean. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, they stay there for close to a month. Mm. And they're able to use the tunnels underneath Mar-a-Lago to come and go without uh, photographers spotting them. And um, it was a real insight into um, a major favor that um, Donald Trump did on a very human level for Giuliani that, uh, you know, Giuliani could have felt loyalty for a long time because of. As a result of. Yeah. Uh, Let's work in the denial. Here's the Vanity Fair headline from last year. Rudy Giuliani angrily denies being drunk while advising Trump, insists Diet Coke is his drink of choice. Now, I I will say, um, of course, I've been tipsy on TV. Who hasn't been a little tipsy on TV? When you have to deny you've ever been tipsy on TV? I haven't been tipsy on TV. Really? I haven't had the opportunity. Oh Well, when you get a call for an (laughs) 11 p.m. breaking news hit, you know, what what do they expect? Um, But here's the key. you got to be self-aware. And this is the thing. This is where I think it gets gets into Rudy. You have to be self-aware when you're on live television— or you're on a podcast, or you're on anywhere, about your state of mind. Right. And it, when, when I've seen him in these live shots where people have later said he seems drunk, there's clearly a lack of self-awareness. Right. Um, is that what happened with the hair dye also? I, the, I, the infamous November 2020 
press conference. Well, I, I don't know that he had been drinking. I did a lot of reporting on that. That was earlier in that. the day, yes. We don't right. have any evidence of drinking. But but, but, but there was a happen? lack of self-awareness. It's, it's a very good point you're making. I mean, in his old age, he's kind of um, become kind of foggy, right? Foggy. Foggy. He's, That's um, like a generous explanation. He's, he's a confused man. Mm. And I think that that press conference was a demonstration of it. But if I could get back to the drinking for one moment, mm. there's a scene in my book that takes place in the White House on election night in which there's a war room beneath kind of the ballroom where everyone is celebrating or, or waiting for the results. There's a war room set up with all of Trump's election lawyers. And they're, you know, busy at their lap- laptops. And they get word that Giuliani is kind of upstairs looking for Trump to advise him to declare victory. And so, you know, they're in a panic because they know that Giuliani has Trump's ear. And so they get Giuliani down to the war room. And Giuliani implores them, just say we won. Just say we won. And according to Jason Miller and other people who spoke with me, Giuliani was drunk. Mm-hmm. And it had huge repercussions because he's. they're saying, where should we say that Trump has won? And Giuliani said, Michigan. And they're like, well, he hasn't won. You know, Trump mm. hasn't won Michigan. And he's like, I don't care. And they're like trying to kind of literally keep him away from Donald Trump because they know he'll listen to him because he's telling Trump Trump what, what he, he wants, wants to hear. To hear sure. And sure enough, Giuliani finally goes upstairs, finds Trump in the official residence and urges him just declare victory. And that's what Donald Trump did. Can we go back to what you were saying about Trump offering uh, Giuliani this kind of tunnel of uh, avoidant shame at Mar-a-Lago. Well, tell us a little more about their relationship, their early relationship, pre-Trump mm-hmm. presidency, right. how they knew each other, and then what has motivated Giuliani to, to stand by his man so long? Right. Well, uh, it's a very good question. And, you know, there's been this theory that has become gospel over the years that Giuliani and Trump were not that close in the early years. Well, mm-hmm. you know, we one of the benefits of writing two books about Giuliani is that the second one had the benefit of his mayoral papers now being available in the archives. Oh, and so where, where's the archive? Found uh, in the mayoral archives oh, at, oh. near City Hall. And what we found was like a tremendous number of correspondences between Trump and Giuliani and Giuliani's people. Mm. And Giuliani was doing all these favors for Trump. There was one story I tell in the book in which uh, Trump is determined to build the largest residential tower in the world right near the, the United Nations. And there is this kind of agreement that UN always had. You couldn't build a building taller than the General Assembly building, right? Trump is just, you know, Throws yes, that I out will. the window and right. saying, yes, I will. And, Giul- <laughs> and Giuliani is ignoring all of these angry emails from neighbors like Walter Cronkite, uh, Kofi Annan, uh, Walter Riston from Citibank, all of them imploring to reject this, this application. Giuliani didn't even respond to their, to their letters. And <laughs> you could see Walter Cronkite's letters getting increasingly angry that Giuliani is literally ignoring him. Meanwhile, Giuliani is speaking at Trump's mother's funeral, at his father's funeral. And then they do that f- infamous um, video for the Inner Circle dinner of, Bo- of uh, Giuliani dressed in drag. You know, you're really beautiful. And a woman that looks like that 
has to have her own special scent. Oh, thank you. And Trump nuzzling his nose into Giuliani's fake breasts. Oh, you dirty boy, you. Oh, oh. Donald, I thought you were a gentleman. Hmm. I mean, th- those guys were kind of had common cause going back a, a mm-hmm. long way. I mean, mm-hmm. common know, if, cause being they, mm-hmm, you money. know, they were bros. Like they saw themselves in each other, right? Um, and if you speak to some people around Trump, they'll tell you that Trump was more influenced by Rudy Giuliani's mayoralty than by any other politician. You have to remember that. Back in, you know, the 90s when Giuliani was mayor, you know, Donald Trump wasn't in politics. He didn't really study it closely. All, you know, all he knew about politics was what he was reading in the New York in Post. The New York at Post. The, right. Yeah. Um, it, and watching this kind of strong man, this authoritarian turn around the city made a huge impression. And if, um, you know, there was one White House aide at the time who told me that he thinks that, that uh, Trump modeled his presidency to some extent, on the Giuliani mayoralty, this kind of authoritarian, take no prisoners guy. Giuliani racist. Was a, I mean, yeah, dog I mean, whistle is, and out loud. I think we can say that. Sure, a lot of that stuff, I think, made a big impression on Trump, and um, it explains why Trump stuck by Giuliani uh, after a while. Like Julie, you remember mm, there was a period where right. it was Giuliani who was screwing up on television, right? Giuliani, you know, the hair dye press conference, the four seasons. And, you know, Trump, Trump like let go people left and right. He mm-hmm. had no loyalty to people around him except to Rudy Giuliani. Even in that week of the hair dye press conference, he drops Sidney Powell. One of the other lawyers is out there making arguments on his behalf. He, he disassociates from Sidney Powell but not from Rudy Giuliani. There is something about Rudy Giuliani that makes Donald Trump swoon. They also, there's some similarities in terms of the the way they talk, the way they behave. You know, there's this new uh, lawsuit um, from uh, from Noelle Dunphy. Tell us who she is and, and what she's out, out alleging. Well, you know, <laughs> um, there are so many kind of uh, paramours in Giuliani's life. And uh, this woman is the latest. She's filed a suit contending that Giuliani sexually harassed um, uh, her when she worked for him. Um, you know, but she, she has tapes. Yeah, but she, she, has, she has tapes. She has sex tapes, right? She has tapes of Giuliani speaking in a sexual manner. These breasts and, belong to me, he says. No one right. else can get near these. Right. There's nothing in those tapes which display sexual harassment, right? They were, I mean, they were lovers. They were lovers. They were having sex. Unless, um, and consensually. Uh, Unless there was a power dynamic that was not good for her, which that was the case, wasn't it? I don't know. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's for the courts to decide. Okay. Right? She's sued. Right. We're going to see what happens. Your point is, this has been happening to him, or he's been doing this to himself for a long time. Yeah. I mean, I don't even know why she's she's doing it. She's never going to get money from him because well, she's Well, she's broke. humiliating him. Isn't that one of the reasons? Uh, yeah. Further humiliation okay. in public. Okay. When you have messages out there about him talking about Jews versus Italians. I mean, this is this is unsavory stuff that's in public view. I think it's more than unsavory. It's hard I, to embarrass I, Rudy Giuliani, but okay. I, I also, I, I mean, look, we can talk about the drunken behavior and antics that are just patently, I mean, they're kind of... You can't help but laugh at them. The Four Seasons fuck-up was epic. But Giuliani, as a serious threat to American democracy, let's talk about that for a minute. Sure. Because he is, no? Or he is. He is allegedly. Well, isn't um, it was now? Isn't it a past tense threat? I don't know. What is it? 
Andrew? I think he, I think you're right, Brian. I think he was, but you know, he was up until a few months ago. Mm. Um, yeah. I mean, he did a, such extraordinary damage to this country. Mm-hmm. I mean, if it seems like ancient history now, but Giuliani was the cause of Trump's first impeachment in Ukraine. Right? Giuliani arguably is responsible for two impeachments. <laughs> He was wow. he was the person in Ukraine who concocted that discredited story mm-hmm. about uh, Hunter Biden's activity at Burisma making all that money, which which is true, but uh, extrapolating that to argue that Joe Biden was in on this effort to make millions of dollars. I mean, Ukraine was just such a ridiculous train crash, and and eventually Trump got impeached because of Giuliani. There's no question. I mean, Trump, sorry, Trump got impeached because of because Trump. Of Trump. Sure, sure, sure. Right. But, but I, I it was Giuliani who created that whole fiction that Trump uh, signed on to. That's so interesting. You're, you're, you're helping connect so many dots that I hadn't thought about. For example, you know, Rudy leading the polls in 2008, you right. know, being number one in the primaries. Right. As we're right. in the middle of another primary where Trump is number one. You know, there's a, there's a lot to think about here. Uh, let's take a quick break and then talk about Rudy's future. Uh, more with Andrew Kurtzman and Claire Howorth in just a moment. If you've been enjoying this program, and we hope you have, won't you please leave us a rating and review on the podcast app of your choice. And while you're there, don't forget to hit that follow button so you never miss an episode. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now. We're back here on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. I'm Brian Stelter. Uh, Andrew, you mentioned uh, this is your second biography of Rudy Giuliani. I'm guessing you don't talk to him anymore. He doesn't return your calls or does he? No, he uh, he, he didn't cooperate with me for the book. Uh, my introduction kind of includes a back and forth that he and I had for a while over text messages in which I'm trying to convince him to cooperate mm. and where he goes on at length about the unfairness of the press and how uh, the press seeks to destroy him. And, you know, he he dangled the possibility he might cooperate, but never did. Well, I'm just wondering as we think about the future here. You say he's likely to be indicted in the January 6th case. The Georgia indictment could come any day. Rudy clearly has money problems as well. Sure. Uh, I was just walking into the studio here and reading about him selling his Upper East Side apartment. Um, He's on what? He's on Cameo selling little pops for $300 each, isn't he? Yeah, sure. It's Um, it's sad. Is it sad? Well, I mean, it's a tragic story. That's what I was going to ask both of you. It's a tragic story. That's what I was going to ask both of you because— Disagree. You know, Claire, in the Vanity Fair piece, you know, a little while back, you know, there's a quote from somebody saying this is the tragic collapse of a once great man. Is it tragic or is it justice? I mean, sure. There are two There are two ways in which it is tragic. One is the personal fall of Rudy Giuliani, and the other is the tragedy he has caused for all of us. And frankly, a, a lot of people wouldn't say he 
left New York in a better place. He might have made it a richer place and much happier for some people, but who that cost is uh, certainly up for debate. Tell us more. Uh, Have the debate. Well, Bratton says it in this story. You know, he really prevented us from having a free hand to reach out to the black community. And I think that's putting it pretty simply. That was while he was mayor. And we all know that there was— 9-11 9-11 and the, the years after it were just loaded with xenophobia and Islamophobia. And I, I think Giuliani played that card well and up. And um, so I don't necessarily feel sad or bad about his downfall, even though I can see, wow, it is a Shakespearean arc or an operatic one. I mean, he gave Bratton. Right. He, <laughs> sure. he actually is an opera fan. He gave Bratton La Boheme. Like, <laughs> and Bratton had kept the CD all these years. Right. But, um, I think those are all fair points, Claire. I mean, I think, and I wouldn't totally disagree with it. I mean, I think Giuliani accomplished the turnaround of New York City largely on the backs of young black men who are being treated by police who are working like an occupying army in some of the black communities in, in New York. And they, you know, they demilitarized uh, the streets of some of the worst neighborhoods in New York, some of the most dangerous neighborhoods in New York, but with a good amount of racial profiling. Mm -hmm. And all these arguments from from 20, 25 years ago, we're having them again now. That's right. uh, About policing in the city. That's right. About, you know, crime on the subways, uh, about, you know, homeless encampments. Right. um, And whether the the Rudy way, what what the right way is to tackle these problems are. Right, right, right. Well, you know, it's kind of a seesaw in this city and also in, in most American cities, right? You know, we go through high crime moments when... We empower the police, right? Then we have instances of police brutality when we disempower the police. And it's just a never-ending seesaw depending upon how uh, how much the public is fearing crime at the time mm. and how many instances of racial injustice are occurring. It's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, there's this kind of what I think is this kind of fiction that, oh, you could have it both ways. Mm. And so far, I haven't seen an, an American city prove that. Mm. I appreciate this conversation because when we're talking about one person, in this case, Rudy, we're also talking about millions, in some cases, who are affected, right? And so we we look at the person, we try to figure out what the person represents, but then there's such a wide impact. Well, that's what's interesting to me about the Giuliani we know today. You can see why he was appealing in a certain moment to a, a large segment of people, but it's almost comical how he is now and that he still, until very recently, wielded so much power and influence with the American president is just, I mean, I'm like, holy shit, how is that possible? (laughs) And not only that, but he's going to end up, as you just pointed out, not just responsible for two impeachments, but perhaps he's going to be at the root of all the indictments and um, maybe a criminal conviction eventually. I mean, Rudy Giuliani could end up in jail. And he is 79 years old. So there is still, incredibly, more Rudy story to tell, Andrew. (laughs) Uh, I mean, Giuliani has led an operatic life, and I don't see any indication that that's um, going to change. Mm. Andrew Kurtzman, Claire Howorth, thank you both. Thanks for having us. Thank you. And once again, that was Andrew Kurtzman, author of Giuliani, The Rise and Tragic Fall of America's Mayor and Vanity Fair's executive editor, Claire Howorth. This episode was produced by Gianna Palmer. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. 
and we had engineering assistance from Gabe Caroga and mixing by Bob Mallory. I'm Brian Stelter. You can find me on Twitter at Brian Stelter or send me an email, bstelter at gmail.com. Your feedback's always helpful as we shape these episodes and think about future guests. We'll be back in your podcast feed next week. Three, two, one. Political Breakdown is a daily politics podcast from KQED in San Francisco that goes deep into the issues you care about. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Look, 2024 is going to get weird. Who decides when there's been an insurrection or not? We're still in the innovation phase of AI. And that is where you see that they're not actually being equitable and trying to build a utopia where we can all use drugs happily together. (laughs) But whatever happens this election year, the KQED politics team is in this with you. Political Breakdown. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.